The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, again, we take a moment to ask you to steady our minds and still our hearts and sharpen our affections for you. Father, equip us and enable us to see and hear and receive what you have to say here in your word. Father, we ask it not only for our good, but for your glory and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. One more time, I ask you to return to your feet, please. We read what I think, God willing, will be our, our last time from this first chapter of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, beginning in verse 15. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation and knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, I think that this is, unless God determines... Otherwise, I think that this is our last Sunday morning in this first chapter of Ephesians. And we began, you may recall, we began our, our walk through this magnificent text back in March of, of last year. And it's easy, I think, when we spend 10 months in one chapter to lose sight of the overall argument that Paul is making and just the, the trajectory of the conversation that we're meant to be having here. Where, where's our mind meant to be? And you'll remember that in that first section, it's as though the Apostle Paul has swept us up into heaven and given us a cosmic view of salvation. Not salvation from ground level where man is making a decision to follow Christ Jesus as Lord, but from the perspective of God. God the Father planning and purposing and, and laying out all things before the foundation of the world that he would purchase a particular people, specific people that he would purchase them with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And we see God the Son coming and accomplishing that which the Father had planned in eternity past. Not only Father and Son, but the Spirit as well coming and then applying to us all that the Son had accomplished. And no sooner has Paul got completed his conversation about what salvation looks like from the perspective of God, but then he immediately is driven in to prayer. We're reminded that good theology, it leads us, yes, to worship. This is 
a doxology. This was praise that, that was driving Paul here. He was worshiping God. How, how, do, how do you know that you've actually thought right thoughts about God? Does it drive you to worship? Does it drive you to praise? Does it drive you to celebrate all that he has done? Not only this, does it drive you to pray for the brethren? To thank God for the church? That's what he does, a spirit of thankfulness. But he's got some very specific petitions that he wants for us. First, there's, there's a more broad request that we would know intimately, experientially, that we would know God. This is eternal life, to know God in Christ Jesus, whom he has sent. That we would grow in the, in the knowledge and understanding of who God is. But then specifically, that we would know what is. What is the hope to which he has called us? Pointing to that time in the past when we were called out of darkness and into light. Out of death and into life. That we would, we would know that hope. Not that just we would know the hope, but that we would look at forward into eternity future and we would see the inheritance that is ours. That for which the Holy Spirit has sealed us. So we would know about our calling more fully than ever before. And we would have our eyes fixed on that treasure which awaits us in the future. But in addition to this, that we would know the power of God, the immeasurable greatness of his power, not just the power of God, but the power of God towards us, those who believe, that we would know that he has been working, that he is working according to the power of the power of his power. Paul exhausts all language with regards to the infinite power of God. And how that power has been put to work for us, his children. But he knows that we're dealing with an invisible God. We know that everything that is done is done by his hand of power. But he wants to fix our eyes somewhere specific. He says, I want you to look to the raising of Christ Jesus from the dead. And there I want you to see the power of God. Not just in raising his son from the dead and, 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 and conquering physical death, but all that death entails because the wages of sin are death. So you need to see in the raising of Christ Jesus from the dead, not just God's power over physical death, but his power over sin and over Satan and over fear and over slavery and over all things. You need to see this power that has already been at work. Don't get wrapped up in your own superficial feelings don't get wrapped up in the subjective emotions in this life and the weakness that you feel you want to know the power of God that is at work within you you look to the objective reality of an empty tomb Christ Jesus raised from the dead and you need to know that there's a parallel here that the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead is the power that it takes to make a Christian it was no more a miracle for God to raise Christ Jesus from the dead three days later than it was for him to raise you from spiritual death. To cause you to love that which you once hated. To delight in that which once seemed like nothing to you. But he's not done yet. He doesn't just say, I want you to see the empty tomb and see Christ Jesus raised from the dead. I want you to see him exalted and glorified. You need to know that the work of God, the power of God that worked in taking a corpse and making something altogether new, the glorified and risen Christ, that that's the kind of transformation he's done in you, a spiritual corpse. 
And you see the Son of God raised up into heavenly places. You, you, you feel as though Paul is he's stretching the bounds of, of human language here to try to express to us just what God has done. That you might see the power of God, that power which is towards us. He raises Jesus into the heavenly places, not just taking him into the heavenly places, but seating him at his right hand, the place of privilege and honor and power and authority far above all other powers and rulers and authorities and thrones and dominions above all that is in creation, above all angels and principalities, above demons above Satan, above all things that he is there, ruling and reigning over all creation. Right now, in this day, in this time, we don't wait for some future time when Christ Jesus will reign, but that he reigns today. I brought you a quote from Abraham Kuyper where he says that there is not one square inch over the whole of creation that the risen and glorified Savior does not declare, this is mine. All of it. He says that he is seated there. And then in verse 22, our focus this morning, says that he has put all things under his feet. You recall that last week I directed your attention to Psalm 110, this picture where he, Christ Jesus, we see him seated in this position of honor and privilege, a, a position of victory, showing that the battle has been won, that there's no more sacrifice yet to be made, that while, yes, Satan is still allowed to roam and sin is still allowed to continue, that Christ Jesus has won the victory. We quoted Psalm 110 where we read that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We know exactly what this means. When you have an enemy down, you put your foot upon their throat. It's a position of victory. I have won. I have won. There is, there is no doubt. There is no question. They may not recognize it. They may not have joined in the parade and the celebration and the rejoicing. In fact, they should not. Because when I return, they will find. When I say they, I mean those who do not submit to me as Lord and King. They will find that it is my boot upon their neck. Because I've made all my footstool. But then when he says here in this morning's text that he has put all things under his feet, he's also quoting Psalm 8, the text that David just read to you, and I read to you one more time, beginning in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, this psalm is speaking of mankind. It's a, it's a reflection, it's a remembrance of the creation ordinance. You remember what happened there in the garden in Genesis 1.28. God has created this man and he has placed him in the garden and he gave him a commission. What was the man and the woman, what was their job there? Is that they were to be fruitful and they were to multiply. That they were to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over it. What is man? You see, man is a tool in the hands of God. You think about the majesty of the first half of this psalm. The God who breathes stars. The power and the might of this God. And what greater way for this God to show his might and his power than to take that which is a little lower than the angels and to rule and reign through them. In their weakness, 
and in their frailty. And so his, his purpose, his plan was that man would serve as his vice regent, as his representative, that man would represent God in having dominion over all of creation. But you know how the story goes. The man failed. I don't know how long he made it. It seems to me when I read my Bible, it was maybe just moments or even days. But the man failed. He didn't fail because he gave it his best effort and just couldn't get the job done. He didn't fail because God had not equipped him or given him all that he needed. He failed because he wanted to fail. He failed because he joined with Satan in the rebellion against God. He failed because he did not honor the, <clears throat> excuse me. He failed because he did not honor the place that God had given him in his creation. He failed because he did not delight in the glory of God. He failed. So in what sense can this psalm be true? In what sense can it be said of man that you have placed all things under his feet? Well, there's got to be a new man then. There's got to be a new representative, a second Adam, a last man, an offspring of woman. Because no sooner had man failed than God was there with a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he said that from woman will come an offspring that will crush the head of the serpent. This wasn't just about destroying the works of the devil. This was about accomplishing all that God commanded. All that the first Adam should have been. All that love and law demands. All that righteousness needs in order to be fulfilled. There had to be another man. And here he is. Christ Jesus our Lord. Everything that man was meant to be. So it can rightly be said of him. Where Adam failed, it can be rightly said of him. I have placed all things under his feet. But you've got to see the beauty in this. Scripture makes very clear that we were in Adam. And I've not fully in my mind wrapped my head around what all this means. Does it mean that we were in his loins, that, that properly every man has come forth from Adam? Probably, maybe. Is it a spiritual collect connection? Absolutely. That he was our ambassador, that he was our representative, that he was our federal head, that he was the one there representing you and me in his failure. That we failed when Adam failed. But praise God, we have a new head, Christ Jesus our Lord. And when he won, we one. What does Ephesians chapter 2 say? That we already now are seated with him in the heavenly places and he's got a footstool and the footstool is everything. That's the picture. That's the glory. That's the beauty. That's the promise that all things, ta panta, all things, all things, all things, every square inch, all things. Not just the good things, not just the pretty things, not just the churchy things, not just the things that always bring you immediate happiness and joy. All things, sad things, scary things, hard things, things filled with suffering, all things under his feet and you and him. Do You see, this is the picture that he's painting for us. And this is why Paul wants our mind to be there. Now, we know that there's a degree to which. God the Son already had all things under his feet. It is him through whom and for whom all things were created. And it is by him that all things are sustained even now. But now as our Redeemer, as the God-man, what, what did we discover during the Advent season as we read from um, Philippians 2 that the one who was most high, that there, there was no higher reach of, of glory and, and exaltation and honor that the Son of God could have attained to. You can't get higher than God. 
And yet he condescended to come and become man and a servant. Why did he do this? That he could take humanity back up with him. That we are joined together with him in this exaltation and in this glory. He's saying that's the power of God. The power of God can come in the weakness of humanity. Submitting himself like a slave and, and becoming poor for our sake and laying down his life. Laying in a tomb dead. And it is nothing for that God, that God who does not grunt to raise him back up to his proper station in us with him. That's what Paul wants us to see. This is the power of God to us word. That's why he can say in Psalm 8, 6 of mankind, of those who are in the new man, of those who are joined to, joined to Christ, the second Adam, he has placed all things under our feet. But he doesn't stop there. He says that he gave him as head over all things to the church. Now, he's saying not, not only has Christ been raised and seated and all things placed under his foot like a footstool, not only is he, is he reigning and, and ruling over all things, but he has been given as head. His head over all things. And this word, the, the Greek word that's used for head here, oftentimes in scripture, it just means a head. Just a physical, is it eight pounds? Is that what a head weighs? Maybe more so, but just a, a physical head, a head of a human or a head of an animal or something like this. Sometimes it can mean that which is primary or first. Whenever, oftentimes, whenever you see the word cornerstone used in scripture, they'll often say the headstone, like the first or the primary, the most important. But then there's other times when head means a, a position of rule or of authority. We use this kind of language when we speak about the head of state. And it seems to be explicitly what Paul says in Colossians 2.10, a parallel to this. He says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority. He uses this same kind of language when we get to Ephesians chapter 5, when he says that wives must submit to their husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. It's a position of rule. It's a position of authority. It's a position of a position under which others are called to submit. And so in some sense, what Paul's saying here, when he says that Christ is the head overall, he's really just reiterating everything else that he said. Christ is the rule. He's the reign. He's the proper authority. He's the sovereign over everything that is. Above all, Christ is head. I think the important part here is that Christ as head, Christ who places his feet over all things, Christ who is the head over all things, he has been given to the church. Now there's a number of different interpretations as to understandings, even amongst reform type folks, as to what, what does Paul mean here when he says that he who is head of all things has been given to the church. Because this word here, didomai, that's translated given, it can also mean appointed or placed. And so some people have wondered, is, is what Paul's train of thought here is, is that Christ who is head over all things, Christ is head over all, is also head, he has been appointed, he has been given as ruler and authority and head over the church. Now that's absolutely a true statement. We, we know this to be true. As a matter of fact, if you read the full context there in Ephesians 5, when it talks about wives submitting to their husbands as head, it says this, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, 
even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So is it true to say that Paul wants us to know that there is only one head over the church and that head is Christ? Absolutely, and we need to be reminded of that at times. There is one ruler, there is one authority in the church, and that authority is Christ Jesus our Lord. It's helpful for me to say those words out loud before you. Or do you often refer to me as the under-shepherd? Right? This church ain't mine. And I am not her head. There is one. And it is Christ Jesus. And it is under him that we gather. And only under him. There's incredible weight. I can just... Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's the one that gets all the, uh, all the headlines, right? He, he says that, that the people in the church, he goes on to say that you should, you should help those leaders to, to do it with joy. It should be a joy to lead. And beloved, y'all are a joy to lead. Don't make it hard on them. Don't, don't press back at every turn. Don't always question everything that they do. Don't be a thorn in their side. Don't be that annoying person that tells them all the ways that they have failed you. Make it a joy to lead. You get that part. But you need to hear the next part. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's something that's going to happen. I don't know what this looks like and I don't know what this means. Scripture warns over and over and over again that men should be slow to want to be leaders. We should be slow to place men in position of leadership. Beloved, no man will ever be as fully prepared as he ought to be. It is in complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And the man that thinks I've got this under control, that's the man that's in greatest danger. But we need to be very, very slow because Scripture, scripture says that I will give an account for your souls. You know why? Because you don't belong to me, you belong to Christ. Because he is your head. So, is that all that Paul is saying here? I, I don't think so. And there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one, it doesn't really advance the argument much. If, if what Paul is saying is, Christ is head of the whole universe. The church is in the universe, therefore Christ is also head of the church. That's not really saying anything new, right? I, mean, I guess it could be saying Christ isn't exempt, or the church isn't exempt from the headship of Christ, but that doesn't really seem to be it. In addition to this, I just worked through this word, didomai, that's translated given here, and every single time in the book of Ephesians, it's translated as given as in a gift. We'll see this when we get to Ephesians 4.11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. I think what Paul is saying here is that the one who is head over all, God has given him like a gift to the church. Yes, he's over all. And yes, he's over us in a very specific way because we submit joyfully to him. The whole world does not know that they are under the providential control of this one who is Christ and king. They don't recognize that. We do. We count it joy and we trust in him. And that's how we know that he's working all things for our good because we are constantly listening for his voice and walking through whatever path he lays in front of us. So yes, absolutely, it is true that Christ is head over all and he is head over the church. But you need to recognize he is not head over the church in the same way he's head over the world. 
It's a very different relationship because what does he say? He says he gave him his head over all things to the church. And what is the church? We are his body. It is not said of the world. It is only said of the church. And so we need to be careful here. I think that we need to be careful here because it's two different metaphors that he's using in my mind. He's saying Christ is head over all things. Metaphor one. The church is the body of Christ. Metaphor two. Don't blend those two things together. Are they related? Absolutely. You don't talk about a head and a body within one sentence and not have some cross reference here, not have a reality, a picture that we are meant to take. But if we blend these things together, we miss the beauty and the majesty. And I believe we miss the point of what Paul is saying here. So as we consider what it means for us to be the body of Christ, we cannot lose the reality that the one who is our head is head over all creation. Don't let that wash away in the picture and believe that his relationship to us is the same as his relationship to the world. Or believe that we're only dealing with his relationship with us. He wants us to know that the one who is head over all things is also our head. And that we are his body. And the we, of course, here is the church. Given to the church. Now, I think, I think we're about to... Uh, Yeah, I think, I think we've, we're about a quarter of the way into my fifth year as your pastor. This is the first time that scripture that I have been preaching from on Sunday morning has used the word church. It's all over the scriptures, but I don't find this word in 1 John. I don't find this word in uh, Nehemiah. I didn't find this word in Mark. The first time I see this word, ecclesia, the church. And so everything within me wanted to take this time to spend four sermons unpacking the doctrine of the church. But I don't think that's what Paul is wanting us to do here. He's wanting us to see very, something very, very specific. But we do have to recognize who the church is and, and what he's saying here. And this, this word, ekklesia, it's made up of two parts. Ek means out of. Kalos means, kaleo means to call. So ecclesia means those who were called out of. We're the called out ones. And we see this picture all throughout the Gospels as Jesus is calling men to himself. Or as we, we think about the calling that God has placed upon our life. He has called us out of the world. We are separate. We are, we are the saints. We are the holy ones. We are those who have been set apart. But he didn't just call us out of something. He called us to something. Because this word ecclesia, it can also be translated as the assembled. Or the congregation. And I want you to go back to the Exodus and think about what happened there. God didn't just call his people out of slavery in Egypt. What did he do? He called them to himself. He said, you come to me and you will hear my voice. You come and present yourself before my face. You are my people and I am your God. That that's the picture of what he's doing here. That in the same way, he is calling us out of the world and unto himself. If I had money, if money was just not an object, I used to say, um, we had plans. There's a there's a, a board in my office, for plans to build just a massive sanctuary, massive beautiful sanctuary, for uh, for us for this church. And I used to always say, man, if I could get my hands on whatever it would cost to build a thing like that, ten million dollars or something, last place I would spend it is on a sanctuary. I don't know that I wouldn't. 
there's, there's something about it, and I'm thankful for the sanctuary. I'm not poo-pooing. I love the sanctuary. We, we will probably worship here until the day we all die, or at least I die. About the majesty, and, and, and there, there's, a, there's, there's a way in which God works through, through beauty and, and just a transcendent feel that you can build in a place with cathedral ceilings and hard floors, and there's ways in which God could work. So if I had the money, maybe we'd build a new sanctuary, but I promise you I'd do this if we had the money. I'd put a bell tower with a bell out front, and I would call us to worship every week. Y'all won't let me play my horn. I want to blow the shofar, but there's a picture of God calling us out. Okay, you've gone for a bit. You've blended in for a while. I'm, I'm calling you out. I'm not just calling you out. I'm calling you to me. I'm calling you to gather. I'm calling you to assemble. Now, Oftentimes, when Paul uses this word at Ecclesia, when he speaks of the church, he's talking about local congregations. He's, he's talking about a specific assembly of people, a specific local. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, and maybe this was a circular letter that went to a number of churches in the area. But he's speaking to specific congregations when he speaks of the church. Oftentimes, he's speaking of, of them, those who are made up of the saints, of the true believers. But whenever scripture uses this phrase, the body, whenever scripture refers to the church as the body, it's speaking of the church universal. It's talking about the whole of Christianity. It's talking about all those who have been brought to faith in Christ Jesus, all of those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, all of those who have an inheritance waiting for them in heaven. He's speaking about the church universal, the Catholic church with a lowercase c. That's what he's talking about. Now, within the local congregations, there will always be wheat among tares. There will always be goat among sheep. There will always, until that day comes when Christ comes and sorts out who's who, there will always be deceived folks amongst those who are really his. There will always be some blending. And so when he speaks of the body, who actually makes up the body, he is speaking to only those who are his. That there are some who are of the body that gather in the building. The body might be gathering and then there's some warts or something that are just kind of showing up that don't actually belong. And we may not always know who's who until the final day, but that this body is compiled of believers, redeemed and forgiven and sealed for eternity. And there's a number of ways that scripture that God speaks about us. He talks about us as a temple of God. He talks us about us as a family of God. He talks about us as the household of God, but he also talks about us as the bride of Christ. And here, his body. Now again, we could spend months, we could probably spend years just unpacking the depth and the beauty of what it means to be called the body of Christ. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait. I'm going to wait until we get to chapter 2 to dig a little bit deeper. And then especially when we get to chapter 4 to dig a little deeper in what it means to be his body. But there's a couple of things we, we can say this morning with absolute certainty that I think play into what he's talking about here. Number one is he's talking about the unity of a body. It's not a bunch of disparate parts that we're not tied together. It's, it's not as though that we're Frankenstein of some sort and I'm taking an arm and I'm taking a leg and I'm taking a, taking a, a kidney and something like this. And I'm just sewing the parts together with some bailing string or something like this. No, there's real and fundamental and organic unity, a, a living thing that God is building together, together that he's putting together here. And when you think about the way that a body works, that 
body, the body parts, the members of the body, that each one of them benefit the other. That as God gifts one part of the body, that the whole of the body, that they, they celebrate this and they rejoice in this because it's for their good. That in a, in a very real sense, it means that we are never ungathered. We are never unassembled. You don't tear a body apart at the end of some particular task that it does. So at the end of this service, as you people go your way and you people go your way, we're all still together, united in this living and vital and active way. That we're never really apart. We're always together. And then if you begin to think about it like this, that anything that benefits one part of the body or that harms one part of the body benefits or harms the whole of the body, even when we're in separate places, this begins to radically change the way we think about what we do. How many times have I told you there's no such thing as private sins, as sins that only affect you? But you also need to see the joy in this. Brian, if you leave this place and tomorrow morning you go and spend time alone with God, reading his word, spending time in prayer, being sanctified by the spirit and made more like Christ, do you know that you benefit the whole of the body? When my right arm gets stronger, the whole body benefits. You may never tell anybody what he shows you. You may never have an opportunity to stand in a place like this and say, let me show you what God has revealed to me. It may not be some radical change, but if you walk out of your quiet time and you look this much more like Christ, you have just strengthened the whole body. Your time is not your home. There's a book that I'd like you to, I'd like you to purchase, okay? Diedrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know the story of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he's a, he's a German guy, obviously a Christian guy, and he was hung for being a part of a group that tried to assassinate, assassinate Adolf Hitler. It's not often that you get to read about martyrs. It's not often you get to read about good, solid Christian men that got hung for trying to assassinate a madman. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, during this time of just upheaval, he was meeting with some men underground, and they were, they were really doing life together. He, he created an underground seminary to train people on what it means to really understand the Word and teach the Word and follow Christ. And he wrote a book called Life Together. It's a very, fairly short book, 120 pages. I would just ask you, if you're looking for something to read, to consider reading that book. And it talks about just this sense of unity and, and the way in which you read your Bible and the way in which you pray and the way in which you gather together, the way in which we worship. How do you do life together as one body? I think that's the picture. And when you begin to think about it like this, you recognize this isn't a thing that man can do. Look, we can build a Frankenstein. We can take a bunch of just random parts and sew them together. We can even maybe give it some appearance of life. But the reality is this body can only be built by the Spirit of God. And if you miss this, none of the rest of what's written is going to make sense. None of the rest of what I have to say to you this morning is going to make any sense. You can have no assurance, you understand this, if this body is being built just by man, by our own will, by our own power, by our own abilities, by our own cleverness. Then yeah, a finger can fall off. But if it's, being written, if it's being put together and built by the Spirit of God, how secure must you be? And so, of course, we are his body. And if we are his body, then he is our head. You see, that's implicit. He doesn't say it explicitly like he says it over all things. He does say it explicitly in the parallel. Colossians, uh, Colossians 1.18. 
He is the head of the body, the church. But again, I remind you that his headship, his being head of the church, is not the same way that he is head over all the rest of the world. Because there's another way that this word head can be used. It, not only just for a head, not only for just a primary thing, not only for just rule or authority. It can also be used as that which nourishes. The thing from which other things originate, the source of something else. That seems to be the way Colossians 2.19 speaks of this. That he is the one who directs and animates and gives life to the body. This is very similar to what Jesus said in John 15.5 where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. I am the source of all life. I am the place in which all of this springs forth. That the unity that you enjoy, you enjoy because I am the one that directs and leads and animates and gives life. I nourish every bit of what happens. And I had a total aha moment this week as I was considering this. Okay, what part of this body am I? Am I, am I kidney? Am I a lower intestine? What, what am I? What, what part of this body am I? And I began to think about the way in which the head works in relation to this. And there's people that get all kind of twisted up and they say, you know, in the Jewish mind, the heart is the center. The heart, and I've told you this, the, the heart is where the, the seat of your decisions and the, the, the seat of your will and where your desires come from. And they say, well, Paul would have known nothing about the mind being the thing that directs and leads and animates the rest of the body. But the reality is there were men that were talking in those ways five centuries before Paul. They had an understanding that the mind played some, some role in all of this. And so I got to thinking about, okay, what role does it, I want to I want to bend my arm. What happens? My mind sends the signal, but my arm does the work. Again, I say it animates. If my mind doesn't work, the muscles aren't going to do what they're intended to do. And yet, when the mind sends the signal and the arm does the work, what gets tired? The arm. What grows in strength? The arm. What benefits? The whole of the body. No wonder he says that it's not I but Christ working in me. That I work by all the strength that he is at work within me. That that's the picture here. This is not headship like military or like some political organization. This is not headship, just some random people gathered together. This is not headship where you got a finger. You notice, I hope, the way that you're built, your finger isn't connected to your brain and your toe connected to your brain and your hand connected to your brain. No, we are one connected to another. But that we're gathered together, not just as a bunch of Bunch of random parts. Again, I say not just a bunch of things that are stitched together in some way, but it's something that is vital and, and living and organic and energized and real. And that is our connection to Christ. We aren't just a people that have heard a noise over here and said, man, something's happening. Let's go gather under this headship. Let's go gather under his rule. No, you're his body. By the spirit of God, you've been as cl closely connected to him as a head to a body. Yes, he leads and we follow. Yes, he calls the shots and we obey. Yes, he is the shepherd. Yes, he is the king. Yes, he is the Lord and we are his subjects. But more than this, we are in him. Intimately in him. Not for a moment, not for a season, but forever. And I want you to think about the way that your body works. Listen, when you smash your finger with a hammer, it doesn't get up and run away. It doesn't say this body's the worst. Being connected to this head leads to hurt because the head keeps leading me in places where I get hammered. 
No, we suffer together. We Where else will I go, Lord? Isn't that what Peter said? Where else am I going to go? I'm part of your body. I can't flee from you. I can't run from you. You're the only place I can have any life. So I'm not going to sever myself from the head. I'm not going to sever myself from the rest of the body. That's unthinkable. We're one. We've been united as one. And that's the picture that he's painting here. That we are the body of Christ. No, no wonder he can say things like nothing will separate us from his love. And boy, we know that Paul knew this from the negative, didn't he? He knew the negative side of this. Because you'll recall that when the risen Lord came to Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, what did he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, we're, we're not told in Scripture that Saul ever met Jesus. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he was in the temple complex at some point when Jesus was there. We don't know for sure. But he didn't lay hands on Jesus that we're told of. But Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? And I have to imagine that Paul's mind immediately went to stoning of Stephen. We read there that people were laying their cloaks at the feet of Stephen. And then the very next chapter it says, and Saul approved of his execution. One commentator pointed something out to me this week, and it was, I, I'm not sure what to do with it, so I'm going to put it into your heads, and then maybe you figure out exactly what to do with it. But almost every single time we see Christ Jesus in heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Seated at the right hand of the Father. But when Stephen was stoned, we read this. But full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's almost as if Jesus stands up in heaven and says, that is me that you curse. That is me that you snarl at. That is me that you spit upon. That is me that you stone. Keep your hands off. That is my body and I am outraged. Has that changed the way we think about the church? That changed the way that we think about each other. The first love song in all the scriptures found in Genesis 2. The greatest love song in all the world is found in Genesis 2. When Adam finally beholds his bride, and what does he say? At last. At last. This is bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. Jesus stands in heaven and says, that is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That is my body. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5, 28? For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. He nourishes us and he feeds us and he cleanses us. He cherishes us. Just as a man cherishes his own body. Got to speed up now. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I read one man said this week, what Paul says, what the apostle says here in verse 23 is truly one of the sublimest and most beautiful statements in all of scripture. I just wish I knew what it meant. There's, there's lots of back and forth. What, what does this mean? When he says that he is the fullness of him who fills all in all, who is the fullness? 
Is it saying that Christ is the fullness of God who fills all in all? Or is it saying that the church is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all? Do you understand the question? It's going to really come down to who do we, how do we understand that last phrase? Who fills all in all? It's certainly true that God fills all in all. Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? He fills all and all. And certainly Christ Jesus is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells. So it is absolutely a true statement to say God fills all in all and God fills Christ. Absolutely a true statement. That could be what's being said here. But you consider the context of this statement? If you consider Ephesians 4.10 that says that he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Seems to me that what he's talking about here is Christ Jesus, that he is the one who fills all and all. Again, this is just a restatement, just a piling up of one more way in which Christ Jesus is over all. There is nowhere you can go to escape the hand of Christ our Lord. Over every inch, what did I say? He declares, this is mine. Providentially working and directing and guiding and ruling over all the earth, even those that seek to flee from him. That Christ is all in all. Again, he's, Paul is calling us just to see the massive power of Christ and work in the world, the all-consuming nature. So then the question comes down to, if this is Christ who fills all in all, that means that it's the church that is the fullness of Christ. The question we must ask is, what does that statement mean? That's the harder statement in my mind. What does it mean to say that the church is the fullness of Christ? My mind, immediately, I'll just be frank with you, as I'm just reading it for the first time, before I'm really digging, before I'm really asking a whole lot of questions, when I first read this, I think immediately this must be in the passive sense, as in Christ is filling us. We're the fullness of Christ in the sense that Christ is poured in to us. We're just a vessel. We're just a re receiver. There's, a, there's a, a passivity here. And that would seem to match up with the parallel that we read in Colossians 2, 9 through 10. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It, much like the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You remember that scene as... The glory of God descended upon the temple and it was so thick and so full that nobody else could even enter in. There wasn't room for another man in there. He couldn't come into that place or just as the way that a soul fills a body. That in that way, we as the body of Christ, we're the fullness of him. Not as a body, but as a living organism. Ephesians 2.22 says we are together being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, that we are the fullness of Christ because His Spirit dwells within us. We're full of Him like the temple was full of the glory of God, like a body is filled with His soul. But that's the picture that He's painting for us here, that we would be completely vacant. What good is a building that is empty? What good would a body be without a soul? What good would the church be were it not the fullness of Christ? The answer, worthless. Were we not filled with fullness of Christ by the work of his spirit and this is much of what Paul will pray for he's going to pray when we get to uh, the, he, he has another prayer in Ephesians three nineteen. he's going to prayer that we would attain to the fullness of God or when we get to Ephesians 4 and he's talking about the purpose of the gifts that Christ has given to the church it's, it's that we would 
we would attain to full maturity and to manhood and, 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 and to, to some type of strength that we're not blown around by wind and waves and all the rest, that we might attain to the fullness of Christ. That's his desire for us, is that we would be full, that we are full and being filled. So perhaps that's what this is. And if this is the case, then we immediately begin to realize that this means that we enjoy all that there is of Christ. If we're the fullness of Christ, this means that we don't just get a bit. We don't just get a part. We don't just get a, a little miserly share that all that is Christ is in us. We're, we're, we're full of all that he is, that all that he is is for us, that all that can be said of the head can be said of the body. Again, we're seated with him even now in the heavenly places. There's a positive and a, and a negative, perhaps not negative as in bad, but there is the reality that we we complete the sufferings of Christ as his body when we suffer in this age. And there's a future age in which we will reign with Christ and we will judge the angels as the body of Christ. So this should be an incredible encouragement for us. The realization that Christ hasn't just given us gifts. Christ hasn't just given us strength. Christ hasn't just given us power. He's given us the fullness of himself. We are the fullness of Christ. No wonder Peter goes on to say that we partake of the divine nature. The divinity of the head cycling through that just as the life of a plant is in the root, is in the stalk, is in the trunk, so it also extends out to every last branch. So Christ fills the true church. We are the body of many members and you need to recognize that this means exactly what I just said, extending out to every member, to every branch. This isn't just Christ filling the church corporate. This is each of us individually. Those of us who feel that we have no power, we have no strength, we have no endurance, we have no use. Like, what am I here for? What's your purpose for me, God? I haven't figured out what you're doing in me. He says, you're an integral part of the body. In you comes all that Christ is. All of this power that's been at work, it is in you, working in you even now. But some people believe that for us to be the fullness of Christ, the church to be the fullness of Christ, isn't just talking about Christ coming fully to dwell within us and to rule and to reign within us. But this in some sense means that we fulfill him. And I've got to be very, you got to be very careful when you come to this point because we know that the son of God has no lack. He is completely complete and independent and satisfied and needing nothing whatsoever. God needs nothing. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, but by the way, I don't get hungry. But there is no lack whatsoever in the Son of God. This isn't Jerry Maguire running into the house. What did he say? You complete me or something like this. This isn't that God was in heaven. He thought, you know, I'm really missing something here. I need to build a thing called a church. Never be. God was as glorious as he would ever be before the foundation of the world. But as the God-man, as the Redeemer, as the Christ, as the one who came to purchase a bride for himself, surely you can see how he would say, I'm not fulfilled until she is with me. Just as a body would, or head would be incomplete without a body. Again, just as a husband would be incomplete without his bride. Listen, he's not less of a man. You're not half of a man. You're not a man if you don't have a bride. But the reality is, once you've purchased that bride, once you've joined yourself to that bride, once that bride has become a part of your body, you're empty without her. You're lost without her. You're unfulfilled without her. 
Now again, I'm, I'm teetering up to the edge of language I, I ought not go over. I, I don't want to overstep my bounds as though we somehow could hold God captive or, or somehow we could with, withhold something that Christ needs. But the reality is that we fulfill him, I think, in this way. And we see this in the way that Jesus prays in the upper room in John 17. Not only asking that the Father would sustain us and protect us and watch over us and not allow us to be dragged away by the world. But what does he say? Father, I desire that they also whom you give me may be with me where I am. I want them to be with me. I love them. I purchased them. I owe them. You promised them to me. In eternity past, you promised me a bride and I came and I purchased that bride and I've done all that was necessary and I want her and I need her? Now we have a whole new understanding here that he's not only animating us, he's not only empowering us, he's not only strengthening us, he's not only intimately connected to us, but he's saying, you're the fullness. I, I, like my body, like my bride, I want you with me. And so because of that, he will not take to himself a body or a bride that's less than pure, that's less than complete, that's less than strengthened. So here we are. He invites us to come to the table and we meet him here and he gives us the grace that we need. He gives us the strengthening that we need. He gives us all that we need. We would endure until he comes back and takes us to himself. Father God, we praise you. We thank you for this day and I thank you for this people. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Not only called out of the world, but called together before your face. So Father, as we come together to this, to this supper, we pray that Christ would meet us here, that he would strengthen us here, that he would, he would work a work in us here, that we would endure well, that we would hold fast, that we would suffer with him as we await looking forward to his return. Father, we love you, trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.